we're missing a few folks, including our other speaker, Farrah Hannes, but she will be here very shortly. Welcome, 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 everybody. We're so glad you're here to join us. Um, we have, this is going to be a very um, interesting morning, I think. Uh, we, I, I'm sure. Uh, we have some great speakers who I'll introduce in a few moments, and we also have a really um, great and interesting room of folks that um, include both uh, donors and uh, different stakeholders, activists who are working in this issue. Some of you were here. This is our second briefing that we're holding on campus sexual assault. Some of you were with us first time around and others are new. So um, let's just go around quickly and say our names and organizations so we have a sense of who's here. And then later on when you're um, talking and asking questions or whatever, just remind us who you are, particularly since Vera is not getting the benefit of hearing who you are. So <coughs> Um, I'm still Melinda Fine, and uh, I'm Vice President at Neophilanthropy. <coughs> Michelle Lord, Co-President at Neophilanthropy. and I'm Co-President with Michelle here at Neo. Hi, I'm Maude Green. I'm at Black Women's Blueprint, Policy and Advocacy uh, Associate. <coughs> Eva Wojewska, I'm a Community Associate at Iron Fisher. Good morning, Risa Brothman, and I work on our social consciousness team leading our community partnerships and women's initiatives at Iron Fisher. I'm Pat Ng. I'm the Vice President of Programs at the New York Women's Foundation. Uh, good morning. Uh, John Mulvey with uh, Breakthrough. Good morning. I'm Margie Fine. I'm the other sister of Melinda Fine. Even <laughs> spelled the same way, but different mothers and different families. It's so sad. So <laughs> awesome. should have been sisters. <laughs> and I'm going to be doing a fundraising training for a lot of people around the table. So I'm really glad to see you all. And come say hello. That'll be on July 7th. Hi, Patricia Everett. Um, I'm a nonprofit consultant and I produce the Breakthrough Institute for New York Philanthropy. Good morning, I'm Julie Callahan. I'm with New York Philanthropy. I'm a program officer for our special projects. I work on reproductive health and anti-human trafficking initiatives. I'm Lynn Harris with Breakthrough, as, as is John. Um, he is resource mobilization. I'm communications. And um, Breakthrough is a human rights organization that uses um, a lot of multimedia and pop culture and also on the ground engagement to make human rights real and relevant and actionable to people and drive culture change, particularly in, in the area of gender-based violence and also most recently around campus sexual violence. And I often take notes with my cell phone, so please don't be offended if you're not texting. <laughs> Hi, my name is Naomi Enright. Um, I'm a diversity associate at the Office of Diversity at Horace Mann School. Hi, I'm Tracy Vitters. I am Director of Development and Operations at Sexual Health Innovations. We're building Callisto, the college sexual assault reporting system. Um, and I'm also Chair of the Board at CFER. Hi, I'm Ali Tambros Corman. I'm the Executive Director of Culture of Respect. Hi, my name is Delim D.A.K., recent graduate of NYU Silver School of Social Work. Yeah, it's Yay. social work. Social work. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Kathy Kramer, and I am the executive director of something called New York Interschool and the Faculty Diversity Search, where I work with independent schools trying to bring issues around, um, like what we're talking about today, uh, sexual assault, to students and faculty. Um, I'm also on the board of Sanctuary for Family, where we do a lot of gender violence work, and also a uh, former chair of the board of Planned Parenthood of New York City. So lots of ways that I have these issues. Hi, good morning. I'm Lauren Hirsch. I also am at Sanctuary for Families. And 
um, I'm their director of anti-trafficking policy and advocacy, but I also am spearheading a project at Sanctuary where we're representing victims of campus violence mm -hmm. at a local university. Uh, Neil Irvin, Men Can Stop Rape. Uh, I'll say a little bit more of what we do, but focusing on uh, preventing men's violence against girls and women through healthy forms of masculinity. I'm Amy Richards, and I'm an author, and I'm the president of Soapbox, and we run Feminist Camp, um, and involved with many women's organizations in New York City, including Sadie Nash and Chicken Egg Richards. Hi, Jennifer Addy at the North Star Fund. Hi, I'm Chiachiti. I'm the primary prevention um, assistant director at the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault. And we are primarily a technical assistance and TA provider. We have, uh, we have been a center of excellence in primary prevention and done a lot of TA work around sexual assault with the rape crisis programs in New York State. And now we are kind of shifting gear to more of the campus-based work, um, which is why we are so excited to be here. Good morning. My name is Alexa Avines, and I'm with the Sherman Foundation. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lisa Mueller. I'm also a Sanctuary for Families, uh, a fellow development and communications director. Hildy? Oh, sure. I'm Hildy Karp. I work for a donor who's been funding the women's space for a long time. And Zoe? <coughs> I'm Zoe Rudolph Star. I just graduated from Columbia University. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you all for that. Um, I also am the programs coordinator for Know Your Nine, um, which is an advocacy organization working on Title IX issues affecting campus survivors of gender-based violence. And uh, I'm also the lead complainant in the Title IX complaint against Columbia University, and I've been very involved with both campus and state and national um, organizing around issues of gender-based violence on campus. Is that everybody? Okay. Um, and as other folks come in, we'll ask them to say who they are as well. So I thought it'd be helpful to um, get ourselves centered in the room um, by starting off with a really quick video, which I think actually relates um, in various ways, which I'll describe afterwards, to our topic today. This came to me just, uh, what was it, Friday, courtesy of my little sister Margie Fine, so thank you Margie. You're welcome. And um, <laughs> let's just see it for a couple minutes, and then I'd love to hear a couple thoughts about it, and I'll say why I thought it made sense to show. If you're still struggling with consent, just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my god, fuck yes, I would fucking love a cup of tea, thank you. Then you know they want a cup of tea. If you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they're like, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, then you could make them a cup of tea, or not, but be aware they might not drink it. And if they don't drink it, then, and this is the important part, don't make them drink it. Just because you made it doesn't mean you are entitled to watch them drink it. And if they say no thank you, then don't make them tea. At all. Just don't make them tea. Don't make them drink tea. Don't get annoyed at them for not wanting tea. They just don't want tea, okay? They might say, yes please, that's kind of you. And then when the tea arrives, they actually don't want the tea at all. Sure, that's kind of annoying, as you've gone all the effort of making the tea, but they remain under no obligation to drink the tea. They did want tea, now they don't. Some people change their mind in the time that it takes to boil the kettle, brew the tea, and add the milk. And it's okay for people to change their mind. And you are still not entitled to watch them drink it. And if they're unconscious, 
Don't make them tea. <laughs> Unconscious people don't want tea. And they can't answer the question, do you want tea? Because they're unconscious. Okay, maybe they were conscious when you asked them if they wanted tea. And they said yes. But in the time it took you to boil the kettle, brew the tea, and add the milk, they are now unconscious. You should just put the tea down. Make sure the unconscious person is safe. And this is the important part again. Don't make them drink the tea. They said yes then, sure, but unconscious people don't want tea. If someone said yes to tea, started drinking it, and then passed out before they finished it, don't keep on pouring it down their throat. Take the tea away. Make sure they're safe, because unconscious people don't want tea. Trust me on this. If someone said yes to tea around your house last Saturday, that doesn't mean they want you to make them tea all the time. They don't want you to come around to their place unexpectedly and make them tea and force them to drink it going, but you wanted tea last week. Or to wake up to find you pouring tea down their throat going, but you wanted tea last night. But if you can understand how completely ludicrous it is to force people to have tea when they don't want tea, and you're able to understand when people don't want tea, then how hard is it to understand it when it comes to sex? Whether it's tea or sex, consent is everything. And on that note, I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. <laughs> so, a couple quick thoughts, impressions? Anyone? Marjorie, why'd you send it to me? I sent it to you because I thought um, graphics can really tell you a message fast. It's a tiny, tiny bit of humor about a serious issue. And the humor makes people pay attention in the way that if you just said, I'm going to talk to you about a very serious issue, people might, some people might glaze over. So I thought it was really useful. And the stick figures worked really well. It's neither male nor female. It could be anybody, though we know what usually happens in many cases. So I thought it explained consent so well. I'm curious what other people think about it. Thanks. So um, I actually, I run a girls' leadership program for high school girls. And we had a conversation, and in the conversation, um, there was a lot of chatter about how complicated consent was. And then we watched this. And I feel like this is so accessible, and it's so crystal clear. And I, I feel like it actually, after watching this, opened up our conversation mm -hmm. and allowed us to talk in a very different way. So I think it's great. Great. One other comment, Kat? Oh, well, I was just going to say, I think for high school students, maybe even middle school students, it's, it's so basic that it's, it's, the power of it is much better than a lecture on right. what consent means or right. even an attempt to have a conversation. So I was thinking, Naomi, that it's something maybe we can get for oh, our yeah. schools. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. A lot of my students have actually already viewed it. It's oh, been great. making the rounds on social media, and right. I've actually yeah. already I got it from well. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's where I got it. <laughs> so it's definitely making the rounds, and, there's, and it's opened up conversation. And I don't do much on Facebook, but I do a lot with Margie's. <laughs> I'll hook you up on Facebook. Well, thanks for those comments. I mean, I, I wanted to show it for many of those reasons. I think that it um, really quickly and in a very clever and humorous way elucidates a you know, an issue that appears to be complicated for people. But the way that it does it by using this metaphor of tea, it really shifts our frame. And so um, it... it jogs our sort of traditional assumptions and ways of thinking about it and getting stuck and gives us another way to think about it uh, and another way to frame and understand the issue. And that's really what's at the heart of our conversation today. We're going to be talking about culture change and uh, the ways that different programs, different trainings, different approaches can be jogging us to be understanding this issue differently 
so that what has become um, horrifically way too widespread and commonplace, the norm of gender-based violence, is something that we can begin to unpack and uh, with students and think about differently and, and put an end to in time. Um, as I mentioned, this is our second conversation around this issue we, um, that, we've had it, that we've convened at Neophilanthropy. And in our first conversation, we opened uh, back in February, where a bunch of you came as well, we had three student activist groups who are really leading work nationally around campus sexual assault speaking. Zoe was one of them, and um, we'll talk about that more later on this morning. Um, and we had opened our initial conversation with students because we always want to keep students' voices front and center in thinking about this work. And so after the speakers um, present this morning, we will also open our conversation with students giving their reflections on how what they've heard connects to um, the work that they've been doing on campuses as well. Um, let me just say in terms of NEO that um, this work that we're funding now on campus sexual violence is part of a, a broader body of work on uh, gender-based violence where we are supporting work on anti-trafficking and domestic violence and sexual assault more broadly. And um, this connects to our overall mission and work. We're a social justice funder. We've been around the block for a long time. We've um, worked for 30 years in this space. And we do that through partnerships, um, both with funders in, uh, in aligning and leveraging resources on a whole broad array of social justice issues, and with many groups, um, typically advocacy, organizing, litigations, and research groups on a variety of different issues with whom we provide direct grants, capacity building, learning, networking, uh, uh, fiscal sponsorships, a broad array of supports to really think about what it takes to build movements over time in sustained ways. So our hopes and our goals for today are that we can all um, think together more smartly and powerfully about this issue so that the work can proceed in more um, intersectional and strong ways, connecting to uh, people in various ways that come into this movement with their multiple identities and um, who experience and have frames on this issue that may differ from one another and think about that together. Um, and that as for those of us who are funders, that we think about how we can be really increasing resource support for this uh, profoundly important work so that it can be sustained and grown over time. Uh, I'll tell you about how the flow is going to work this morning, but before I do, I just want to turn to Berta and Michelle and ask if you want to add in any words of welcome, um, comments about our work. You know, it's just great to see everybody here. Some of you we've known for a very long time. I'm looking at you, Margie, and philanthropy <laughs> space, and Kathy yeah. from other worlds, and everyone else from lots of spaces. And, you know, Melinda's really helped us frame this work around gender and gender violence, ending gender violence. But for Bert and I, we also, we've been in philanthropy a long time. I go all the way back, Margie, to 94. And yeah. the gender lens and gender space hasn't really been applied as deeply as it should be to a lot of the issues that we all care about and work on for a whole host of reasons that would take probably three of these sessions to talk about. But we really, in all the issues that we've been working, whether it's immigration, even affirmative action, we've been looking at our work across the board and trying to figure out what would it mean to provide a gender frame to this work. Not only to enrich the work and to make sure that the gender part of the work, the frame, gets equal footing and space as other issues, um, but to also engage other funders and donors, especially women donors who are oftentimes, because the gender analysis hasn't been done, 
you know, to certain issues like the immigration space are not there at the table with other funders. So it's been something that's been very important for Bird and I to really push along with our own work in all the collaborative funds that we're doing is to make sure that this gender analysis and space takes place in those issues. Yeah, I mean, I would only add that um, it's been work that we've been looking at both in terms of our grantees, but also internally. So I think often the kind of starting place is to look at the docket of organizations that you're supporting and how are they applying the gender lens. And so for us, it's been a lot of work on the inside and outside, thinking about you know how as an organization are we thinking about our issues? Are we um, engaging our partners in thinking about how gender plays out and not just merely wanting kind of the language represented in whatever materials we get from groups that we work with? So it's been an interesting process. We still have a long ways to go, um, particularly since gender is so much broader than immediately thinking about women and girls. There's kind of that whole spectrum that's defined with gender. And so we really have been kind of at the beginning stages of thinking about how to weave that through all of our work and have a really solid analysis that we then kind of work with our grantees to support. So if we're looking forward to this conversation, I think this is um, an incredible opportunity to kind of explore um, uh, in a nascent field how issues of diversity play out and so we're really looking forward to it, and we thank all of you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so are you? Okay, we can go. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so you know, um, I'm sure many of us around the table have organized things and things, you know, or our parents or people that work, and things never quite turn out as you expect. So, um, we were going to be opening with Vera. I'm sure she'll be coming soon. Um, she was going to do some framing um, and talk about her work. So. Um, We'll open with Neil instead, and Vera will come in. Let me just, um, I, I will say a little bit about Neil and um, why we're so delighted to have him today, and then I'll save introducing Vera and say why I'm so delighted she's here too, when she's here. Um, uh, so Neil Urban is the executive director of Men Can Stop Rape. You have a bio about Neil and information about Men Can Stop Rape in your folder. Um, as Neil will describe to us, they are doing national work in the field of violence um, prevention, um, <coughs> prevention against violence against women, and really importantly, I think, working uh, with, with, with young people for a very long time, starting in middle school, through high school, and through their college trajectory. So really seeing and sticking with folks over time and um, giving the kind of supports and training and conversation that's needed to really think about um, shifting their sense of self, etc. Um, Men Can Stop Rapes Middle School and High School program is currently operating in 18 states and wow. in over 100 locations, so it's really, really big. Um, Neil has received more awards than I can possibly go through, um, but just uh, a few. Um, he's a consultant to the White House's Commission on Violence Against Women and Girls, the Department of Justice's Office of Violence Against Women, um, is on the National Advisory Committee of the Department of Justice, uh, is an inaugural member of Novo Foundation's Move to End Violence um, cohort, and um, is a lovely and smart and um, great colleague to be getting to know as well. Thank so, you. with no further ado. I appreciate you. My mother will be proud with that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and as a mother, it's always important to make a mother proud. <laughs> um, I, you know, all of your all's experience, and, and I think all the talent and brain house here. I, you know, I have a, a few moments, and I think when Farah comes, 
Uh, Farrah and I get the opportunity to work together as TA providers for the campus program for OVW, Office of Violence Against Women, and um, that's just been a really rewarding uh, opportunity to focus on the areas of judicial reform, uh, intervention, uh, coordinated community response, and primary prevention at a college level. Um, for us at Men Can Stop Rape, this conversation fits, and Pat and I were having a bit of a conversation. We think the field's in the next kind of evolution of the leadership that the women's movement and, and, and the gender-based violence field has done in terms of how do we increase capacity, how do we sustain, how do we invest uh, at the next level of, of our work. And as an example, when Men Can Stop Rape started in 1997, <clears throat> what we probably would have said was that we, um, that we uh, were really trying to emphasize and, and validate um, the importance of engaging boys and men. If we were only following, if we were only going to engage survivors after the violence occurred, we as a field or we as a community would be chasing our tails. Because unfortunately, if we're going to believe patriarchy and misogyny, the theoretical constructs that play out in people's lives every day, then it is those behaviors and attitudes that were creating culture where it was acceptable to be violent against girls and women. And so we knew, Jonathan Stillman, Patrick Lemon, as the co-founders of the organization, knew that we needed to emphasize primary prevention as a way in which we were going to confront the way in which we socialize boys and men in society. And so we had to do a lot of convincing with a lot of allies that are in this room and, and not that it was important for men to be involved in this work. And we had to really be vetted and we had to really be accountable to make sure that we weren't kind of creating an old boys network again and some of the pushback we got was like, no, you guys are the reasons we have to do this work. If it wasn't for men, if men weren't being violent towards girls and women, we wouldn't have these issues. And why are we going to take money out of the rape crisis centers and DV shelters to engage men around these issues when we know how strapped those resources were? And so we really had to earn it for the first five, ten years to show that we were serious about this, we recognized it in our evolution as an organization, that it not only was going to prevent violence against girls and women, but it really centrally identified who we were as men and ultimately who we are as humans. So as you now hear in many different you know, uh, conversations, whether it be about BIOA or the UN Commission on the Status of Women, you hear a lot of talk now about primary prevention and the importance of engaging boys and men. And so I think it's congratulations to us as a field for having now engaged that language in such a way in which it is normal for us. We would, when I started, there would not be five men in the room. And when I came to this work, I was a youth development, and I still, I'm not passionate about gender-based violence prevention. That's not my passion. My passion is young people. That's my expertise. That's my commitment. That's where I focus. So I had a lot of education. I'm Men Can Stop Rape's best product. I went from community educator to the executive director. And so I say all that to say around engaging boys and men, we spent the last 20 years as an organization really educating the field on the importance of engaging boys and men around these issues. And the field has uh, challenged us, embraced it, bought into it, and now we think we're going to spend the next 20 on teaching people how to do it. It's not enough just to say we should. But understanding when we talk about gender, we talk about identity, we talk about orientation, we're talking about how we teach boys to be men. We're talking about changing social norms that are so entrenched that you cannot turn that on a dime. And that's why for us the emphasis of primary prevention is so important and intersectionality. 
my buddies do not know. They, I've been at Men Can Stop Rape for 15 years, and they're like, ah, something with kids, and something mm. about rape, and maybe kids who've been raped. <laughs> if I asked them for baseball uniforms, they would know how to get involved. Mm -hmm. But now, because of the work of many of you in, in this room, my buddies call me when Penn State happens mm. on ESPN. They call me when Ben Roethlisberger is accused of, of, of another rape. They can talk to me about Jameis Winston and was it fair or unfair. And they are on both sides of it. It's a continuum. Mm. But we have started to more normalize boys and men's understanding of the role we play in preventing the violence and how saturated we are with it. So what we're excited about in the teaching of how, I love that video. And the reason I loved it, the note I took was, he says, you know, hey, we can all understand that people don't want tea, right? It's kind of a Some men are just so disconnected that they can't understand that people don't want tea. They've been told, no, no, they want the tea. And so that's the hard work of behavior change. So from a mental health perspective, you know, simple behavior can take a year to a year and a half to change. So we're really focused on, here's our friend. So we're really focused on finding new avenues, new institutions, new environments on college campuses in a larger community to, uh, she's right here, to invite more men, to invite more men like my friends who are in business and, you know, every area of human activity, whether it be the, the military or professional athletes or academics. How do we help them put a gender lens to their work? An example for us was when we worked with in the patch in North Dakota. Now, I've never been to North Dakota. I don't know what, what's really going on there. That in North Dakota, what was really great in terms, again, an expression of an industry that does not, gender-based violence is not their primary goal. They, they have an area out there called the Patch. There's a big, huge oil boom. And if any of you have seen it, it's like the Grapes of Wrath. Literally, these man camps are being created. And the infrastructure of that community, the police force, the first responders, could not deal with the influx of people who were not native of the state, all of the vices that come along with it, gambling, drugs, trafficking of girls and children for prostitution, they couldn't respond. And here was an example of where the leadership of this industry saw not only their liabilities, so I think this goes to college presidents and regents as well, how liable they were for not having infrastructure in place. But they also felt as men, and men and women, professionals, that this was an opportunity for now one of the biggest employers of the state to have voice in what their expectation was of their employees and the leadership they wanted to provide in their community around gender-based violence. And so it's a very small graphic here, but the public education campaign we created around bystander intervention had images of men who work on oil rigs. And so in the moments where we have conversations with other men about this, and they want to maybe in the past, they would have dismissed this as sensitive work, touchy-feely, you know, that's girl stuff. Now they see men who are like them. And sometimes we have to kind of, we have to meet men where they are and engage them in a way in which resonates for them. So when I go into a room full of Marines who've been in harm's way, sometimes they're, they're prioritizing violence. They don't see the violence in the same way that we do. And so how do you win them over? 
Well, after you've talked with a room full of Marines, men and women, for a while, you find out that these are some of the best inter- uh, best bystanders you've ever seen. They all want to know what the Good Samaritan Law is in, in their particular community, but they want to be involved. They've been trained to do it. And to see a female Marine stand up and say to her fellow Marines, you all are my brothers. And if it wasn't for fellow Marines on this base, this is what would have happened to me. And I count on you all to keep me safe. And other Marines starting to challenge the higher-ups. So now you've got credible messengers in the room who are not going to necessarily do take back the night. They may. Walk a mile in their shoes. They may. But in their everyday lives, their job descriptions as Marines, they have a sense of responsibility. You know, Marines can get, you, know, you, you can be court-martialed for coming to work late. Your buddy goes out and gets drunk and does something, you could get in trouble. So there again becomes another place where men, a type of masculinity is heightened, and we can engage them around our work with strategies that serve. Now on a college campus, we like to look at the football teams, the athletic departments, and the fraternities, and many of them have a lot of work to do. But many of them are probably our best resources because of the platform and the stature that they hold. And so if we go back, and this is the last piece I'll say on this, if we go back to putting a gender lens through all areas of the campus, how do the first responders think and understand unhealthy masculinities compromising that campus safety and how healthy masculinity can increase the capacity for everyone to be focused on every moment of the day, creating cultures where girls and women are safe from men's violence. Technology has made it a lot easier for us to do that on college campuses now. We have a smartphone app that we use that allows for free, that allows students not only to GPS six of their, I think ours is you can do six to 12 of your closest friends, but you have immediate access to 911, so there's a before, during, and after aspect to this app. And what we want the men to do is to have that as a resource. <coughs> Most men, we don't feel like we're ever gonna be raped. We don't feel like we're ever going to be abused. But when you highlight for men that they probably know someone who unfortunately will, as men, it taps into that bad side of, well, chivalry kind of thing. I'll do it because I'm a good guy to do it. Hmm. We'll start there. We'll start there as a way, have the resource, know about it, know what it is. So now when, when other information around these issues come up, there's a connection for them. There's an entry point. And so I, I'm going to stop there just for, for time to say that, like, for, for us, uh, the campus work that we're doing now in the intersections should be, Ahmad and I were talking about this before, every discipline on that campus should be emphasizing what the gender lens is for that particular de- discipline. You have a bunch of research chemists, I guarantee you there's misogyny and sexism going on. Yeah. It's as aggressive as any, in any environment you can imagine. If you've got some English, uh, when I hear some of the things that many of you who may have you know, advanced credentials, what you go through in terms of, of, of uh, your, your review boards, and there's some aggression there, there's some patriarchy there that you all have experienced. And so it's not just the football team. Remember, the football players consent to going out onto the field every Saturday and slamming into one another for two hours. So yeah, it's violent, but they agreed to it. It's consensual. And so that's a space where we can't only demonize the athletes as them, but the culture that exists. And the last thing is that if we can start working more to help the regents, not the regents and the presidents, but their legals team, understanding that circling the wagons is not the way that you're going to reduce liability. 
Creating resources and services for students who find themselves on both sides as survivors and accused that are efficient and just. And so as an African-American man, I don't want to just automatically be accused of something and then have to be kicked out of school or um, uh, demonized. I want a just and fair judicial process mm. for someone who's been accused. But what has happened is both sides, wagons get circled and there is no intersection. Mm. And so we as a field, I think, have an opportunity with many of you in work that you're talking about uh, that you do in your everyday lives as well, have a great way to help educate them and help build their capacity to understand that the intersections of all of our roles on a college campus and in community lifts up our ability to serve survivors and have a just process for, for accused, um, which is something that, you know, just like sexual assault and domestic violence fields didn't work so well together historically, I think we're going to have to look more at how do we incorporate or think about the accused role in the healing and judicial process. Because that is something that we kind of keep our hands away. And I think it's something that Farah and I, even in our conversations preparing for this, struggled with the balance of culturally. Can I support my brother's keeper with the work we do with our young people? Or is that at the expense of the young women that we serve? Mm -hmm. And what is the balance? And it will be your all's leadership and conversations that will help us think through. What's the dosage of that? And so I'll stop there and, and turn to my dear friend and my sister uh, to take us to the rest of the conversation. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. What I thought we'd do is I'll introduce Farah and go right into this. But does that work, or would you rather take a moment and ask some questions directly to Neil, or hold those? You okay with holding? And okay. Mm -hmm. So I am delighted um, to welcome Farah. Um, I hope you've had a chance to get coffee and yeah, water, water is fine. and chill and no, whatever. Thank you. Navigating oh. <laughs> New York City in the morning is never fun. I know. Um, My apologies. Uh, Farah um, is the co-founder and executive director of Black Women's Blueprint which is an organization that works at the grassroots that is addressing the spectrum of sexual violence against women and girls in the black and African American communities um, and doing a lot of intensive work with historically black colleges and universities, HCBUs, across the country. Um, like Neil, she has so many different hats and awards, um, so I will just tick off a few of them, but um, you can see her full bio in the, uh, as well as information about Black Women's Blueprint in the binder as well. Um, she launched and chairs the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the United States ever um, to focus on black women and um, their historical and contemporary experiences with sexual assault. Um, she's also the uh, founder and lead curator of the Museum of Women's Resistance, which is one of the international sites of conscience in this country. She, like Neil, is a member of the Novo Foundation Move to End Violence Program cohort. Um, thank you, Novo, for support for this profound work. Um, and among her awards are the um, 2014 Feminist Majority Foundation Award and the Ms. Magazine Wonder Award. Um, so, wow. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And, um, it's, it's always great to have opportunities like this talk, and I think after the last funders briefing, this is really timely. It's really timely um, at a time where we're dealing with and we're, we're, we're energized by the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and so I really appreciate being here and really getting the opportunity 
to sort of go through and really bring the perspective of black women, black young women on campus, but really look at the intersectional issues that impact their abilities to report, their entire experiences, what it means to walk in our skins as black women, as queer women, as gender nonconforming women, uh, um, transgender men and women. And so, you know, at Black Women's Blueprint, we are the uh, national technical, assi technical assistance provider for the, 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 um, for the uh, Department of Justice, Office on Violence Against Women, as is Men Can Stop Rape, um, working with 105 historically black colleges across the nation. We work primarily and very specifically with grantees, but also, also potential grantees on a myriad of issues providing training, providing technical assistance, really providing information about applying for grants, finding resources, um, providing training if necessary, receiving phone calls on critical issues if necessary, and so really to help build their capacity to address violence on, on, on their campuses. And even as HBCUs look at it from that culturally specific lens and unpack a lot of the internalized racism, a lot of the internalized sexism, and really deal with and unpack a lot of the structural issues that get in the way of addressing these issues. And so um, uh, I want to begin with a survivor story. I'm not going to talk for long, but this survivor story really will help ground and foreground the conversation and the whole notion of intersectionality and how it is in the different aspects of identity, experience, history that, that uh, survivors have to navigate. So as co-founder of Black Women's Blueprint, I've been asked by one of our other co-founders, Christina, who couldn't be here today to share her story. At 19 years old, her freshman year in college, Christina was fixed up on a date with a young man on her college campus. Upon picking her up so they could go to the movies, he convinced her to let him into her residence. And she says not two minutes went by that he raped her. <coughs> During the rape, he covered her mouth. Her, believe it or not, her mother was in the next room. Mm. He covered her mouth to muffle her screams, and then immediately he fled the scene afterwards. She found the courage within her, bravely returned to school. Having been the first to go to school in her family, <coughs> she's an African-American young woman, being the first to attend college in her family, finishing school for her was critical, it was crucial. Not having access, access to information on a predominantly white campus, which she felt could speak to her experience as a black woman, whose family was from Mississippi, a very historic Mississippi. Not knowing where to turn, the police not an option, given the long-standing